0: Welcome to FRT, the IIF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica, Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IIF. I'm here today with Silvia Atanasio, Head of Innovation at the Italian Banking Association, and the chairperson of Abilab as of today. Sylvia is also a member of the ECB Digital Euro Market Advisory Group. Welcome Sylvia.
1: Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much for inviting me. We're very
0: excited to have you. I thought we would start today by having you tell us a little bit about your background prior to the Italian Banking Association and then also your role there and particularly about the lab.
1: Thank you so much. I joined the Italian Banking Association when I was too young to have a previous life. So uh, I, I started there when we set up. Abilab as a consortium. So this has been my initial contact with, with the banking sector. We developed this center for research and innovation for banks covering different topics in the innovation field with specific observatory. In the last part of my experience there, we started with uh, testing and and working concretely in in the DLT field. This is where the Spunta project started, and I think maybe we will cover it uh, later on. Three years ago, maybe four years ago, I joined ABI for setting up the Innovation Office, which is now covering the CBDC topic, crypto, artificial intelligence and so on. And yes, now from today, I'm back to Abilab as as chairperson, which would be, I'm sure a very exciting uh, experience.
0: Why don't we start with talking about how the Italian banks have used distributed ledger technology and their experience with the Spunta project?
1: Yeah, we we started from a quite deep knowledge about the key back office processes, and uh, when we discovered the DLT as a technology, and we understood uh, what working on ledger implies, we realized that it could be really basic for banks to re-engineer their own ledgers. So we started with a quite simple and niche process, which is called uh, Spunta in Italian, but it's basically about reconciling bilateral movements uh, between banks. So we reshaped the bilateral relationship thanks to the distributed ledger. So there, on this real DLT that we developed together with the initial group of 18 banks, now banks daily reconcile their information and their movements in a sort of nostro and vostro account, something not that far from correspondent banking in in some way. The process is basically an information process, so they just reconcile information, not transfer value-based process but it is in production three years now. 94 Italian banks has their own node and process their transaction daily thanks to this DLT-based application. Uh, we processed so far 650 million transactions, so more or less 300 millions per year. So this is a sort of demonstration on how an entire ecosystem can move into a DLT application. And it's been very interesting and very inspiring for for us also to take the challenge to uh, scale up performance in a real, even though very simple, regulated process. Another interesting fact is that sharing, and something that we learned throughout the project, is sharing a DLT, sharing a, a single application which is distributed across banks, implies that we are not talking about installing an application in different information systems. So we are talking about the same things. So even when contractualizing the use of this service, banks are contractualizing basically a single object. So the contract should be exactly identical across parties. No possibility to personalize, to customize, I don't know, policy, security policy uh, clauses or privacy options, uh, etc. Because if the provider, Abilab in this case, would contractualize different clauses between different parties, there would be a lie somewhere. So the contract must be exactly the same for all parties, which is quite strange compared to what is the normal way of doing this kind of things.
0: What do you see as being the, the greatest benefits and any potential risk of this particular approach?
1: The main benefit to me is about transparency and to the opportunity to have access to a single source of truth. This is understandable only after the migration, because until you are looking to your own application, as it is like When you look yourself at a mirror, you think you are looking at the single source of truth until you see another entity which is looking at its own mirror. Then you discover that there are two versions of the truth which you previously completely ignored So understanding what is sharing the single ledger and looking at the same information is something that is clear to everyone which is working on this topic, but it's concretely and it materialized in front of you only after migrating a a project because you understand how powerful it is and how it helps to reduce operational risks you were neither able to see previously.
0: So let's move on to talk about the digital euro for a few minutes. Talk to us just about the Italian bank's approach to date to the digital euro and potentially use cases that you've experimented with.
1: I think probably thanks to the Spunta project, in the end of this three years uh, initiative, we had quite sensitive community around DLT and and programmability. So when the topic of CBDCs and then the digital euro report from the ECB has been published, we had an immediate positive and constructive reaction from, from Italian banks. Even though it is quite clear that there are big risks, And especially in the beginning, so now the ECB is working to define a specific aspect of the design of the digital euro. So now we know that the digital euro will be distributed through supervised intermediaries, so there would not be a direct contractual relationship between uh, European citizens and the ECB and, and so on. They would put a cap on the amount of digital euro holdings in order to reduce the takeover of the digital currency as a as um, store of value, uh, etc. But even before start thinking of all these possible risks, Italian banks wonder which kind of innovative services they would have been able to provide to the market and to offer to their customers if only the digital euro would have been programmable. So we started from the end of the story wondering and trying to envisage which kind of services we would have been able to to provide and the very first idea has been related to a government bonus that is provided to teenagers turning 18 in italy and now also in france and in other european countries only to buy books and cultural related products such as theater tickets or concerts etc So as of today, if you want to use this bonus, teenagers receive it through an app on their mobile phone, but then they have to go to the bookshop and the bookshop should have been uh, credited and and, uh, listed by the minister issuing the the bonus in a specific list. Then they pick up the book, go to the cashier to pay and provide the bonus. The bookseller receives the bonus basically a promise of reimbursement in, in some way, and from time to time goes to the minister to have cash back. If the culture bonus would have been provided through a smart contract related to the digital euro, the condition of spendability would have been written in, in the smart contract, which verify the satisfaction of, of requirements directly during the transaction. The smart contracts become consumed, so it vanished in some way, this way, the bookseller receive money uh, and without any condition, so completely fungible. This way, it's, it's not necessary for the bookshop to uh, apply to the minister to be able to receive bonuses. It's not necessary to perform back office controls after the, the payment to verify that everything has gone the right way, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And also it provides liquidity to merchants because they immediately get money in change of books. And starting from this idea, we developed other stories in some way, other real life examples of how to leverage on the programmability features in order to provide innovative services based on the digital euro. Some of them are related to the idea of split transaction, for example, related to revenue sharing Uh, business models and this is also very interesting because uh, it relies on business users uh, instead of only citizens. So this kind of ideas has brought to four use cases we really developed as a demo to show to the ECB the idea of digital economy we have in mind and we consider enabled by the digital euro if only programmable.
0: So I know that programmability is a a subject that has been fairly debated on the international scale. Some jurisdictions are very interested in aspects of programmability, others, and more increasingly so. Are seeming less interested in, in pursuing a programmable CBDC, if, if they do pursue a CBDC. I know more recently in, in January, around the week of the World Economic Forum, that the Eurogroup had put out a statement around that, and I think kind of questioning the value of or the desirability of making a retail CBDC programmable, as well as the UK on their their recently released report. So how is your thinking? And- and those kinds of cases evolving in in the application for for the Italian banks.
1: This is very interesting because in the European debate, there is a strong difference between programmability of money and programmability of payments. Programmability of money, as stated by Fabio Panetta very recently, is something that changed the nature of the currency from the very kernel of of the money itself. So in some way it is transforming the currency into a token that you can use only for a specific purpose. But if the conditionality vanishes after the first transactions and the money that comes out from this transaction is back fungible, you're talking about programmable payments. it is only the transaction which is programmed whilst the currency is free. This is technically true because the smart contract is not written inside the token. It is not written inside the currency, but it is beside. I know that it's quite sophistic like as, as a difference but this is always important when you talk about something that goes into a regulated market you know into such a complex basics of what finance the finance industry relies on and those kind of differences are really substantial and are really crucial in in defining. So recently, uh, the ECB published a document with some example of innovative use cases that are related to programmable payments. And three out of six of those examples comes out Uh, from our experimentation. So pocket money for children or government bonuses or a split transaction, for example, to perform uh, the various payments that are needed when you buy a real estate or a a property are examples of what can be done thanks to a DLT-based, because this is what programmability is about, CBDC. Another example is that there is also a discussion on which kind of technology can shape the infrastructure to enable a native programmability. And it is worth reminding that the current and centralized infrastructure are based on a message-based system where payers and pays are one per side. So all payments are among one payer and one pays. So if, for example, if we talk about split transactions, we need to have multiple entities at at least on one side of the payments, many pays for one payer or many payers for many pays also. So this is something that changes fundamentally the way we envision transactions and exchange of money. So this is something that is enabled by DLT, for example.
0: You're absolutely right that it it is a very, I don't want to call it a a picky difference, but a very technical difference, but absolutely essential to understand that difference in between programmable money versus programmable payments and what it does or does not do to to the nature of, of the money itself. I know that different jurisdictions have also been examining concepts of purpose-bound money or, or tokens that are specifically targeted to achieve a purpose like food programs or relief to particular populations or identified objectives and what kinds of parameters you could put around there. But then the question becomes, how does that or doesn't that change the nature of the token or the payment mechanism itself, as opposed to you know, using the ledger to execute that focus.
1: You're absolutely right. And it reminds me that in November, I was in Brussels for a conference organized, co-organized by the European Commission and DCB, where Commissioner Dombrovskis underlined that our currency is not just a piece of paper or a piece of metal, but it incorporates our democratic values. For this reason, it's absolutely right that each jurisdiction makes its own choices on the design characteristics of the specific CBDC because it has to be specific of the constitutional values of each part of of the globe. This is very important and it is useful, very useful to learn from pioneers, especially in this case. I like to mention the fact that many African countries are really pioneering and discovering limits and benefits of CBDCs in different countries. But when we transfer these lessons from specific countries to others, we need to adapt them to understand the implication for the rights of our citizens and for what we want or what we don't want the currency is able to do. So, for example, the first topic that comes to mind is related to privacy. So, of course, in the European Union, we are the country of data protection, as we, uh, we are now under the GDPR regulation. So this is something is very profound, sometimes uh, also heavy <laughs> for our activity, daily activities and for all partners that from outside the EU wants to interact with us. So in some way we are also affecting the rest of the world with our GDPR requirements. But this means that we consider the protection of personal data of the utmost importance. So this this will be there also for the digital euro. I'm absolutely sure, and this is also what comes out from the debates inside the ECB, that the central bank nor governments would never have access to personal data or to detailed transaction data. That's why also supervised intermediaries are there, because as it happens with electronic payments nowadays and every day, we are there because uh, supervised intermediaries manage data of their own customers, which are not necessarily recorded on a single Big Brother ledger somewhere. This would not happen. So how are you seeing the next steps
0: of the Digital Euro project come down the pike? I know that there's a lot planned in in the next year for certain, and perhaps changes to the various phases of the project.
1: Yeah, the ECB is really working full steam. I see them accelerating every day. And if I may suggest something, I I think that whilst the investigation phase is going to the second year and is is planned to end in autumn this year, we should move from a question and answer base into a a more implementative approach. And we need to find a way to have a concrete public-private collaboration in an implementation phase. This is something that has been discussed also in the wholesale CBDC topic, because everyone is calling for a strict collaboration between private and public actors, but it's quite hard to envision how this collaboration should concretely take place. It's important to understand how the market can provide useful inputs to the central bank, which of course is responsible and is leading the project for any kind of CBDC, but it's not yet very clear how to to reach and to be able to leverage on the multiple inputs that can come from the markets concretely into the implementation phase of the CBDC. To me, this part of the collaboration is the most tricky one for for the next months.
0: Yes, important to recognize that, you know, not every country is quite as certain, or not every central bank is quite as certain as the ECB is in terms of the desire to at least proceed with investigating very closely. I know that the the Fed and, and for instance, here in the U.S., they are doing a lot of work in terms of investigatory processes and research and, and thinking about these issues, but are less far along in that, and perhaps less convinced as of yet on on the retail CBDC side, but perhaps more so, you know, beginning some pilots at least on the wholesale side, where we see their recent 12-week proof of concept pilot around the regulated liability network, perhaps at a at a wholesale level, where you also see the UK perhaps more focused you know on research into a potential retail level CBDC and perhaps looking more to a synthetic CBDC on the wholesale side that would be more private sector led perhaps all still very early uh, days in a lot of the discussion but clearly different approaches by different jurisdictions and and I think you're exactly correct Sylvia in terms of thinking about what are those constitutional and um, geopolitical and and just existing dynamics that a country may have in terms of the uh, maturity of their payments infrastructure already or other objectives that they may be trying to accomplish in changing something about the payments system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is not an easy decision, so it has to be recognized. So a lot of different considerations can apply and can lead to different conclusions. So it's not that easy what i can say is that there are two key instruments to conduct this analysis and to perform an assessment that can bring to the final decision one key instrument is a pen which the central banks are very used to so they analyze from a theoretical perspective the um, impacts the potential risks the impact on financial stability etc cetera, etc cetera. to this extent the central bank is the best issuer because it's the only one that has financial stability in its own mandate. No private actor has financial stability among its primary objectives. At the same time, the second instrument is a screwdriver. So it's very difficult to to decide about to issuing or not a CBDC without experimenting. This is the part where a collaboration between private and public actors can provide the the maximum value and i think that experimenting it is possible to find way to reduce some risks and to optimize the design characteristics in order to get a good result
0: it definitely sounds like the Italian banks have, have been participating in that, experimenting with the central bank and with authorities. So just wrapping up our conversation, is there anything else at Lab or items that you're working on that you wanted to highlight and that you're very excited and looking forward to?
1: Yes, we are very happy that here in Italy, the Bank of Italy promoted an initiative called Milan Hub, which is a sort of forum for joint experimentation, which directly involves people from the central bank. And as Abilab, we are uh, recently proposed in in the context of a call for proposals, some possible experimentation that can be conducted in the field of wholesale CBDCs and leveraging also from the Spunta project, because sometimes we heard there are no experience in the DLT field that are big enough to be considered for a regulated world. Maybe some concrete initiatives, such as the one that has been conducted by Italian banks can be leveraged and challenged also a little bit more trying to add the exchange of value among among its participants. So we'll see if we would be selected for this experimentation, but in any case, we will continue experimenting together with banks and ICT providers because the mandate of Abilab, there is this collaboration between banks, institutions and ICT providers in order to figure out what's coming next.
0: Well, we're excited to see what does come next. So, Thank you very much, Silvia, for being with us today and for sharing your views from your position as the head of innovation at the Italian Banking Association. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of FRT to our listeners. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IAF website as well at iaf.com.